This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Tears of War. And our author, who has written this memoir, is Ingeborg E. Riles, who joins me from Florida. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to visit with you. Your book, the book cover, is uh, is intriguing. Is that your photo on the cover? Yes, it is. It is. When I was a teenager, yes. Uh, they chose to put the picture on the cover. <laughs> I, th- I think it's very, uh, very fascinating the way they have uh, structured this. Uh, this obviously has to do with World War II and your memoir. Why did you choose to write your book, and what is the inspiration behind it? Well, at first, uh, uh, I wanted to forget the terrible memories of that period, at this period of time in my life. But as the children began, my children, as they went to school and they began to study, study World War II in school, they began to ask questions. And... Uh, uh, knowing that as a teenager, German teenager, I had lived through World War II. So over a period of time, I would speak at elementary and high schools, uh, wrote down various uh, notes, which over the pe- a period of time led to enough material for the book. You actually uh, were a child or grew, grew up in Germany then? Yes, I did. I'd, yes, I grew up in Germany in a small Pomeranian village. And uh, like I said, uh, after uh, World War II, you know, I came to this country, and uh, then I eventually wrote the book. Were you in, interred, in, interned in a, uh, a camp, uh, a prisoner of war camp during that time, or were you no, able to? When I was, uh, during the war, I was a child. I was just a young girl at, uh, at the end of the war, I was shipped at, as a teenager to the eastern part of the country to dig trenches for the German military. And uh, it was a very hard uh, job to dig these trenches. And they found out I was only 15, so they, I, had to, I had kitchen duty from then on. But I was there for several months to dig trenches for the German army. And that was not a voluntary position, was no, it? No, 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 you no. Just had to do what they told you to do. And your your, yeah. ration, your rationing didn't consist of uh, great great amounts of food either. You you tell in your book. Well, while we were at the uh, on the eastern part of the country near the Polish border, as the Russian army was coming closer and closer, we had plenty of food there, but they were mostly mostly bandish meals, you know. And uh, it was nothing fancy, but we really had enough food there. The uh, starvation almost happened after the Russians uh, came to our country, you know, if, um, and uh, there was no food available. We had to be subsisted on both potatoes and milk for a long time. Incredible. How long was this period of your life? Uh, with the Russian uh, yes. occupation? Yes, with the Russian occupation. From, uh, I was 14 
by that time, the time they got there, they, they conquered our part of the uh, Germany. And uh, 18, uh, I escaped, at 18, I escaped from a labor camp. So mm-hmm. I have a, a period of four years. Four years. And, uh, and, and a Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was go just gonna, I was asking about the, the escape itself. Now, once you escaped, and uh, first of all, how did you escape? And once you escaped, where did you go? I could not go home again. I uh, had to take a train immediately to Berlin because I'm in the Russian labor camp. I was appointed to a um, uh, head of a brigade. I was called a brigadier. And I had to report to a Russian officer. He was my superior. And he began to drink. And uh, he wanted uh, a lot of favor with me. And I did not, was not interested. And he started to hit me, beat mm. me. One afternoon, it was Saturday afternoon, about 5, 6 o'clock, my brigade and I were standing outside the building, and he came up and asked me to come to his quarters to pick up my work orders for the next week. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I said in Russian, I said, Niet, no, Mm. because I knew what he had in mind. He was intoxicated. He hauled out and slammed his fist into my face. I was sending me sprawling to the ground, and... uh, my brigade surrounded me immediately to usher me away. He ran into the building, and from the first floor building, he stood at the door. We had to jump onto a concrete on the floor. I thought we were going to break every bone in our bodies, but we made mm. it all right. Another brigadier told me, she said, you can don't go to, go to your barracks tonight. Spend the night at my barracks. And so we did, and... Uh, Anyway, this is when I decided I could not stay there any longer. We got the worst work assignments, and uh, when he started to beat me, that's when I decided to escape. And what was the method of escape? How did you get uh, free from uh, that situation? Well, I, uh, like I said, we had, uh, it was kind of tearful because I had 50 women under my command. And the last night I was there, we built a little bonfire, and we reminisced about the bonfire, and we said our goodbyes. The next morning, they all went to work. I appointed somebody to be brigadier because they had to get their ration cards for the next day. Hmm. And uh, then I, you know, we said our goodbyes, and the next morning after they had gone to work, I kept on waiting at the uh, until I was sure that uh, Sasha, the officer, had to report to that he wasn't there in the camp. And uh, so I waited till about nine o'clock or so before I walked out of the barracks. And I was starting to walk toward there was a train coming at uh, about nine o'clock in the morning that went around the island, and uh, that was the only way I could go to the ferry. And all of a sudden, I was started walking out of the barracks, and somebody called my name, a Russian a sergeant. I almost froze. <laughs> it was a supply sergeant for I, with whom I had daily contact. I had to get the sh- shovels and the rakes and, and, and uh, everything for my girls mm. for the work, you know, on, and to get from him, check them out. And so I called him by his first name and I said, come on. I said, you have to write me a permission. I had, they took our passes from us. You had to have a pass. The ferry was heavy guarded that I had to go to the mainland to escape. And I had to have some kind of paper and they were taking, our passes were taken from 
us when we got to the island. So I dragged him to his office. He already had been drinking that morning. And I told him, I said, you sit down and write this out. So he kept on saying, niat, niat, which is no, mm-hmm. no in Russian. And I said, yes, you do. And so I gave him a pen and he started scribbling something on a piece of paper. This was a handwritten note. Of course, the Russian language is quite different from the, you know, the Latin or the German language. So when I got to the ferry, I finally made the train. I grabbed the piece of paper. I heard the whistle of the train out of his hands, rushed to the uh, train and just made it in time. And when we got to, I got to the ferry, I was so scared. There were two Russian soldiers, heavily armed, standing on the ferry that was to take me to the mainland. So I waited about several hours before I had enough nerve to get on the ferry. Well, I handed the first Russian soldier this little piece of slip of paper with the Russian language on there. He turned it upside down. He turned it this way, that way. Then I realized he could not read. So he handed it to the other soldier and he did the same thing. Neither of them could read. So they just, they realized this was written in their language so they motioned me to get on the ferry incredible and yes and so that's how i got to the mainland but i was still a long ways from home i didn't know i had to close on my bag i had no food and i didn't know how i was going to get home but i finally there were some russian uh, uh trucks on the ferry and one of them went to the berlin i asked them where they were going and they offered to take me on the back of the truck within, I think it was about two miles of my village. Incredible. Had pass. Wow. But it was a long, long, it was, this was in the morning, and by the time we, I got to my village, it was midnight. So Incredible they story. Stopped, they stopped so many places along the way, you know. As, I'm sorry. As, as, a young, as a young adult in, living in Germany and being brought up, did you understand the scope of Hitler's control and what was to be known as the Holocaust? Well, we, we heard about it, and uh, but we were so uh, not not isolated. But we only had the radios. Of course, there were no TVs. We had definitely heard about uh, persecuting of the Jews. And in fact, in the next village, there was a Jewish. It was a larger village. There was a uh, clothing store. Uh, it was run by. Uh, um, uh, Jewish, you know, the owner was Jewish, and uh, one night they bashed in his windows, and I felt so bad for them. They had two lovely teenage girls, and I don't know whatever happened to them. I mm. have no clue, but they eventually disappeared, you know. Yes. An amazing time in human history. The Second World War is just Absolute, one of the most absolutely. startling yes. and, and uh, yes. frightening times that I think the humankind has gone through. As you uh, begin to write your story, uh, did you share with the readers how you got to the United States? Uh, yes, I did. I After I escaped, um, um, it's a long story, but how I got through the pass control heading into Berlin, I, I hit in a restroom on the train while the soldiers were checking everybody's passes. And uh, when I finally got over to the Western sector, the American sector of the city, I eventually um, met my husband in the Western part. He was responsible. He was a civilian 
to restore the postal and the, um, the telephone service in Germany. Everything was totally destroyed. And for the first time, he was able to, they had contact with South America and the other countries. And But he was the one that was responsible for, for restoring all these services. That's amazing in itself. Yes. As people are reading this, who do you think will enjoy or benefit from from your book? Uh, I think uh, uh, there has been, uh, over the years, a lot of interest in World War II, and I think it's, it's a book that uh, uh, will tell you about the atrocities that were committed by the Russian soldiers on a daily basis. I mean, we had to hide from the soldiers when they came to the village. Young boys would stand at the entrance of the village and uh, alert us. We immediately would go into hiding because all they wanted to do is is drink vodka. They would come in in the late afternoon, pick a house at random, get you know, intoxicated, and then go throughout the village Mm. to look for women to rape. It was just Mm. on almost a daily basis. Horrible, horrible, horrible uh, scene that you've just described. As uh, you completed your book, were there some underlying messages that you want the reader to take away from the read? Well, I was hoping that we had learned a lesson that uh, how brutal and how bad it is, war is. And uh, apparently it is still a present-day problem, you know, and I was just hoping that, uh, uh, like I said, at the end of the uh, book, uh, if I may just read this to you, this whole chapter, uh, not chapter, but this, uh, I said, at the end of the book, this book is dedicated to the innocent victims of World War II. It was a war that spent several continents and touched the lives of many. They endured hardships, starvation, and untold atrocities at the hands of others, often paying the ultimate price. To honor their memory, let us strive to make this a better world in which one is not judged by nationality, race, or religion, but by the kindness and compassion one shows toward his fellow men, let us rise above the use of force and solve our difference in a more humane and civilized way so another war of such proportions will never again touch our lives. But apparently we have not learned a lesson. It, the world is that's very, so much is going on right now. Yes. And uh, so, uh, anyway. But that is your hope of yes. of this memoir that you have, have yes. written. How would you introduce this to someone in a couple of sentences? Um, I, I think uh, it's the loss of innocence for, you know, for our generation when, when we grew up. And we can learn from the past. Yes, and this is why I said uh, I was hoping we would learn from the past, and so uh, another war of such vast proportion will never again touch our lives, but uh, it's not so. You know, there's a lot of uh, things are going on in this world right now, uh, and, and I was hoping we'd learn a lesson. Much conflict. You've included some photographs uh, of family members and uh, other key contributors to your story as you were 
putting this into uh, print. My brother. Is that and, your brother? Uh, of course, my cousin, he was, uh, he got killed. He was uh, an airman. And uh, there's my cousin, uh, Lorchen. Uh, she was taken by the Russians, and, and they found her, and she was assaulted. And uh, there are, yeah, there are a number of uh, uh, pictures here. And of course, my mother. And there's a labor camp uh, where I was, you know, in, uh, on the island in the Baltic Sea, the barracks here. And uh, so there are a number of uh, pictures in there. Yes, and they just underscore the importance of the story you're telling. Were there challenges in going back into your history and reliving some of those moments and uh, putting it into print? Uh, sometimes, yes. I would, uh, when you start writing this and go into the details, yeah, and I had, uh, there were some times I thought, well, I should I don't know whether I should have done this or not, but uh, uh, yeah, I wanted to do this for my children and uh, to let them know what it was like uh, during the Second World War, what we experienced, and for them to be more appreciative uh, of the life they are living here in this wonderful country. And uh, like I said, we, we had no food. We, and that's one thing, uh, the Soviet soldiers brought disease with them. First it was diphtheria, then it was typhoid. First I got diphtheria, I survived that. But there was no food and there was no uh, medicine to cure these things. Then I uh, was in this apartment building where a doctor, uh, everything was closed down, the hospitals, everything. This doctor uh, in the apartment building that had um, um, been converted into a temporary hospital, and this doctor was treating the patients. He had no medicine, nothing, and uh, I went there to, when I had diphtheria, and uh, the typhoid patients were on the top floor, and I came home a week later, I got typhoid fever. Oh, my. I almost died. I was so sick. I thought I was going to die. I went, my weight went down to 80 pounds. My hair was gone. I could not walk anymore. And I was hallucinating. And um, I truly thought I was going to die. Ingeborg, you have shared with me a personal story of uh, tragedy and survival. Please share that specific incident with my audience today. Here we were all in there together and sleeping on the floors everywhere. They probably occupied the rest of our homes, you know. And uh, after the Russians left, we still decided to stay in this particular home. We were afraid to go to our homes and live there individually because we thought we were safer in numbers. So um, one night, uh, soldiers came to our village to one of the empty homes where we had, we had vacated. They were starting to drink, and about by, by the time it got dark, they were shooting their weapons into the air. They were all mm. roaring drunk. And so they suddenly, they were banging on out the back door. And it was a very heavy door, but they took rifle butts and just bang, bashed in the door. So my cousin Lorchen, she was two years older than I. I had just turned 16 and never even dated. You know, we didn't date early. And Ilse, her, her friend, and I, we were put into a small room. It was a storage room and a large wardrobe. We didn't have walk-in closet. A wardrobe was pushed across the door. As the soldiers came in, there was an officer and soldiers. They were all intoxicated. And they were walking in and they were looking for girls to take to their 
drunken party there. Mm. And uh, so we thought we were safe. And all of a sudden, they went around on the outside, showing their flashlights. There was a small window in this room, and they saw us. And all of a sudden, they pushed the wardrobe across uh, the way, and there were the soldiers, obviously heavily armed with all their rifles and so forth. First, they dragged my cousin Lorcan out into the next room, and Ilse and I, we jumped into a wardrobe in the corner. Well, they opened the door to the wardrobe and dragged Ilse out. And next they came for me, and I pressed my legs against the bottom of the wardrobe. I wasn't going to come out. And uh, two of them tried to pull me by the arms. And when I wouldn't come out, mind you, they were intoxicated, and they had these big, uh, this gun set for where you pull the trigger and 20, you know, shots come out mm -hmm. and uh, ammunition. And so anyway, so he put the gun into my stomach, and he was ready to shoot. And I lifted up my arms uh, as a last result, and uh, so that they dragged me out of the wardrobe, and I pretended I couldn't walk. So they asked me what was the matter with my leg. I said, "Crover, cut me crover is cow in English, in, in the Russian. And I was kicked by a cow, I told them, so I couldn't walk. So they deposited me in the middle of the room, uh, they were looking for more women, and, and there was my cousin and her friend, we have already there, and my mother was standing at the door, the officer was standing at the door, and uh, she kept on pawing at his face. She said, please don't take my little girl. She said, take me instead. Take. And he took her, mm. slammed her against the other side of the wall, and where she crumbled down on the floor, and that made me so mad. So I decided, you're not going to have me. I'm going to act so horrible that you, and so I did such horrible things. I let saliva drip out both sides of my mouth. I looked cross-eyed at them and I start moaning like I was not all right in my head. I was pulling through my hair and in front of my cousin I pulled through her hair and I just was moaning and groaning and making the awfulest faces and, and like I said, even this disgusting let saliva drip out of my mouth. And when they got ready to go, I was sitting there on my knees. The officer took his boot, slammed it into my chest, so I fell backwards. And they didn't want me because I looked so bad mm. and mm. made such horrible noises. So anyway, and anyway, I got, got saved that time. But then later on, we got more soldiers coming. And uh, well, it's a long story. But it was a horrible, horrible night. When I got through, I could not even. I mean, we, we had nerves of steel at the time. We had such a good childhood. But when I got through the second time, every bone in my body was aching. I couldn't put my teeth together. They were even every tooth in my bones was aching. I was so traumatized oh. in one night. Incredible. That's an incredible story. And uh, wow. I am delighted you have survived and are able to share that with us. It's a. It's a tale of warning also, for sure. Yeah, I know. I, like I said, those, those were horrible times. And they, they, they just, somehow or other, they were so brutal. Their behavior was so brutal uh, that we had to just hide all the time, you know. That's all they wanted to do is drink vodka and rape women. And, horrible. Uh, now the Russian government now, they are finally acknowledging that, that so many rapes took place and so many children were born of these rapes. And they are... If they can prove uh, that they had a child 
of a rape, they are going to pay restitution. This is a striking story and, and certainly poignant. Your, your tale of survival, World War II, and from the German side, a young lady caught up in the maelstrom of the war really didn't know what was going on politically. The title is The Tears of War. Our author, Ingeborg E. Riles. Ingeborg, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Uh, from uh, Amazon.com. It's on Kindle and uh, Barnes and & Noble uh, and uh, Books a Million. Uh, you can get the book through, through all of these uh, places. Thank you for taking the time not only to uh, reminisce about this difficult time in your life, but also sharing with us your story and uh, the, the consequent tale of caution that is woven throughout your book. Again, uh-huh. thank you for joining me today. Oh, oh, thank you for calling. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Seemingly irreconcilable issues that have continued to alienate people over a period of time can be resolved, leading to the establishment of harmonious relationships between them. It may be hard to understand, but we can recognize and diffuse unfounded assumptions that have led to conflicts in our lives and acquire more effective communication skills that lead to greater harmony in our relationships. Exactly how do you do that? Well, that's the story inside the pages of the book Conflict, The Unexpected Gift, written by Elizabeth Seaman and Jack Hamilton. And joining us today on the iUniverse line is Elizabeth Seaman and Jack Hamilton. Thanks for being with us. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. We're very glad to be here. Boy, this is just such an interesting topic as I look through your book and some of the information about you guys in this book. You know, conflict really seems to be, it's really just a natural consequence of being human, isn't it? Well, it certainly is, and uh, we aren't aware often of what causes conflict, and we get into conflicts and don't know how to get out of them, and or even that we can get out of them and that we can do something about conflict. We have found in our many years of uh, mediation work that what typically causes conflicts is when people form unfounded assumptions about each other. Uh, They are unconscious of that, typically. They aren't aware of that, but 
it's the assumptions we make about another person's behavior that actually triggers our own emotions and causes us to be upset or frustrated or angry at the other person. Now, I know, uh, Jack, Elizabeth, without going really well deep into your resume, because that would take up all of our time, you guys, between the two of you, have mediated through your work and through your business uh, uh, literally thousands of cases. Is that right? Well, probably close to it, yes. We didn't really keep good track after a while, but... uh, yeah, it's been uh, quite a lot. So but certainly over a thousand. Yeah. And that's really what got us started thinking about uh, writing this book, is that we found that the communication principles that are embedded in the mediation process are very powerful, and they make uh, possible uh, reconciliation between people who start out just absolutely at... Uh, Uh, well, they're just really, really upset with each other, and they don't really see how they're going to get uh, resolved, the issues they have, but it's those communication principles in the mediation process that makes it possible. I want to expand a little bit on this idea of unfounded assumptions. Uh, Why do we do do that? Because oftentimes, I'm, I'm going to guess that those assumptions are really that assumptions. They're probably not truths. That is right on target, yes. Uh, What we do is we we tend to have knee-jerk, very quick reactions to uh, what we perceive in the way of the behavior of another person. And we can often go up what we call a ladder of assumptions. That is what has become the main tool in our book. A ladder of assumptions represents the way our minds work. We tend to race up a ladder of assumptions that are further and further removed from reality. And then sometimes we even get to the top of the ladder where we're drawing upon rather hidden prejudices, stereotypes, preconceptions that we carry around with us all the time. And they are those that we use unconsciously to label other people. So it's those labels that we unconsciously put on other people that often get us into difficulty in communicating with them. So and besides that, Jack mentioned the top rung of the ladder where we are thinking in terms of generalities and uh, stereotypes, but often all we do, too, is to um, make assumptions about their motives, for example, oh, you know, she did that because she couldn't stand seeing somebody treating someone else in another way, for example. Or uh, she didn't like what I said. But that may not be the case. And so if we start reacting to someone else because of what we assume they are thinking or they are doing or what they're like, then we're in trouble uh, if we just think about it and then kind of, well, am I right about that? I better check it out with her. And we clarify things with each other, then we're not likely to get into conflict. But most of the time, we don't clarify things with each other. We don't check them out as to the validity of our assumptions and maybe ones that the other person makes, and then we're in trouble. Would one of the reasons be... um you guys, that perhaps we always want to win. 
when we get in these kind of arguments or situations, it's is it because of a very selfish thing, and we we build these things up in our mind in a way in a way to win? Well, that's that's a very good point. There seems to be a, a sort of a natural aspect of being a human being is that we tend to think that our view of what is the correct view. Uh, we seem to believe so strongly in our powers of perception that we tend to dismiss the ability of another person to see the situation uh, and that they may well have a lot to offer and they may see the situation at least as validly as uh, I do and maybe they see it even more uh, validly than I do. So we do have to come to grips with this reality that we're only seeing one dimension of a situation and there's many other dimensions that we don't necessarily see. So so in the in the book, do we get some practical ideas? I mean, it just seems so difficult sometimes for us to have the ability perhaps to step back and and not to make those assumptions, give us a basic kind of idea of what's in your book of how we accomplish that. Well, in the first steps that we suggest to people is that they become aware of how their thinking is going because we do things so unconsciously and subconsciously that we jump into actions or words without thinking about them. So we're first becoming aware of how do does our do our minds work and that's where this ladder of assumptions comes into play that Jack mentioned and so that people begin to think that they know they think they know the facts of a situation they're in a particular setting maybe we're all in one room together but depending on where we're sitting we're seeing different aspects of the room we're not able to all see the same thing so in we're on the same setting but not seeing the same sets of facts And then we go ahead and interpret what somebody is doing or saying from our point of view, just the way we think of it, but the other person isn't we, and we aren't the other person. And uh, so, but we don't necessarily give credence to that. But this, through that chapter, there, there are activities too in each of our chapters that people can do and practice uh, on their own in order to gain this awareness. And another whole chapter deals with listening. Most of us are not trained to listen to each other at all, sometimes not even to ourselves. And so that, for example, a parent may tell a child, hey, listen, and, is, and, and later on with a teenagers, you never listen to me. <laughs> But are we ever taught how to listen? What does it mean to listen? And we try to encourage people to listen for understanding and give quite a few tips there in what that means. And in each chapter, too, there are lots of examples of actual situations and how the, the conflicts that people that were in and how they worked through them, the understanding they gained with each other, and the steps they took. So there's a lot of practical learning in that book. As Elizabeth has said, uh, drawing from our experience in mediations, there's probably no more important uh, skill that a mediator must have than listening to the uh, people at the mediation table 
as they describe the issues that bring them to the table. So uh, what we have tried to do in the book is to explain to the reader what effective, what listening for understanding is all about, which means, for example, we encourage the other person to tell us more about what's going on with them regarding a particular issue. And we really try to put aside our own judgments, our own assumptions, and put all of our energy into trying to understand where the other person's coming from, and then asking clarifying questions when something they say doesn't seem to be very clear to us. And then we also encourage the readers to reflect to the person they're listening to the feelings and the underlying ideas or thoughts that they are expressing in, in, their, uh, in what they're saying to us. And then finally, we ask, we try to get the readers to, uh, to practice summarizing at the end of a particular conversation exactly what they heard from the other person. So just hearing the other person has a very, very positive effect on that person. Okay, let's do a, a little exercise here. A couple of real-life things, I think, that you and Elizabeth were both mentioning. And I know we can't go into great detail, but just let me just throw these out because I'm sure you address things like this in your book. Uh, here's the first one. Can I possibly get along with my boss or coworker who's always putting me down? Okay, so there's uh, already the impression that the boss is putting me down, that that's uh, that's the, the, the employee's interpretation of what the boss is trying to do. Um, so, all right, how do we get along? Again, go or say if I'm the employee who's having this that impression of my boss, he's always putting me down. What is it that I'm hearing? What are the actual words the boss is saying? Uh, what is it, in what setting did this happen? What was the situation in which the boss said it? What was it that I did or said that may have led to that? And try to do as much clarifying in my own mind as possible, and then go to the boss and say, gee, you know, you, uh, I heard you last week when we were in the meeting or we talked, and you said that... Um, my work wasn't up to par. And that really hit me hard. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you meant by that? Can you be specific and give me some examples? So that would get that conversation going. Um, often I think we're stopped by fear. What can happen if I say something? What can happen if I don't say something? But if we think these things through and see something from the other person's point of view, too, if, if at all possible, and what it is we're trying to achieve, then I think we'll also find the words to use with, in approaching another person. Jack, that leads me to our next question. In Chapter 3 of your book, you include a long list of impediments to listening for understanding. Which is the most critical impediment for people to avoid? That's a good point about the impediments uh, that we listed in our chapter on uh, listening. Uh, one of the impediments that uh, typically gets in the way of, of constructive communication between people is when each person 
is so eager to get his or her point into the uh, conversation that they block out any listening to the other person. And when that other person takes a slight breath or takes a slight break in what they're saying, then, for example, I might just launch in with everything that I want to say that I've been waiting to say, and I'm going to really try to get my point across. And in the meantime, the other person uh, is not listening to me, but is also trying to marshal his or her points that they want to get into the conversation when I take a break. So it's that impediment is a, is a long-standing um, method of conversing with one another that we sort of learn when we're very young, and we continue to use over the years. It's like making a conversation a competition. What we're trying to do in our book is to shift from looking at a conversation as competition to one of collaboration and trying to help each other understand each other. We're getting close to the end of our time here together, and we've talked a lot about the issues, the problems, the conflicts that we have. I found something really interesting, and I think maybe it's the whole point of your book, The Unexpected Gift, Making the Most of Disputes in Life and Work, is that we do have regardless of what, how we may feel sometimes, we do have the capability of learning these skills. Is that really kind of the lesson, the, the major lesson in your book? Yes, that is a, a major lesson. What we say is that uh, in our book, uh, Conflict, the Unexpected Gift, that all of us uh, come into the world with the uh, inherent ability to because no two situation the same way. But we also come into this world with the inherent ability to learn how to resolve conflicts. We don't come into the world intuitively knowing how to do that, but we have the ability to study, to read, and to learn how to resolve conflicts by talking through issues in a constructive manner and uh, finding that we actually do have some common ground between us that we can agree upon and move forward in our lives from. When people pick up this book, what is it that you're hoping they get from it? Well, we're hoping that they will realize that, oh, gosh, what a relief. I really can do something about this situation. And we found this, for example, at a book talk uh, that we gave where a woman heard us give an example of a situation uh, that was in a workplace, and she said, gosh, I had a similar situation, and I never thought that there would be an answer to that, and now I know that I can actually use some of the skills that are in your book and put them into practice and can gain peace with that person. And our hope is that when people learn that they can make peace with each other, that that will spread kind of like a pebble in a pond and, you know, eventually, maybe 200 years from now, lead to <laughs> world peace. But if we can help people make peace with each other one-on-one, -on -one, that, that's, that's a big gift, I think. Yeah, what a, what a great start. Effectiveness of, uh, uh, of the book in terms of what the readers will take away from it, we uh, can draw upon our over 20 years of experience in doing mediations uh, that when... 90% of the time when we have conducted mediations, people who came into the mediation room uh, breathing fire and being tremendously opposed to one another, they come out realizing 
that they have been able to talk through the issues and respect each other and come away with a relationship that often is stronger than it was even before they got into the conflict. And that's the gift that they come out of by using the tools that are in conflict, the unexpected gift. Well, guys, tell us a little bit. Uh, where can we find the book? And I, I'm going to feel certain you guys have a website, too. Tell us a little bit about where we can find the book and how we can get more information. Okay. Uh, you can get more information from our website, which is learntoresolve.com. And that's the number two there in the middle, learn, number two, resolve.com. And also you can order it from any local bookstore or online from places like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any of the online booksellers. And then you should get it in a few days. So some real-life answers to real-life problems, Jack. That's true. Uh, you will find, the readers will find in the book that we have included many uh, examples from our own uh uh, professional experience where people who have been in conflict and have been able to work through the conflict have given us permission to uh, use these accounts in our book as long as we uh, made sure that uh, their privacy was maintained. So there's in every chapter uh, we have several actual accounts of people being able to work through the issues that had divided them but no longer do so. Elizabeth Seaman and Jack Hamilton, thank you so much for being with us. Again, the name of the book, Conflict, the Unexpected Gift, Making the Most of Disputes in Life and Work. What a fascinating subject. What a great tool for most of us out there. We encourage everyone to pick up their copy today. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Waldo Emerson, My Grandfather and Me. And the author is Eugene Perdicone. And Eugene joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Gene. Hello there. Great to have you with us. Uh, very uh, interesting approach to help us better understand this great, great writer, renowned throughout the world, Waldo Emerson, in, in a way that most people uh, would say, well, this is an interesting way to help us because you're helping 
uh, a teenager learn about Waldo from his grandfather, but there's some great lessons that you're trying to communicate to all of us, I guess. That's correct. I mean, it's just not for the teenager. That's just your. Uh, that's just the way you're doing it. Indeed, it is. It's uh, a way to get some um, ideas across that are very hard to uh, understand if you read Emerson himself, unless you're very much scholarly inclined. Well, he's called an American sage. Uh, of course, this boy has never heard of him. Uh, is this a real-life approach, or is, is this based on, like, yourself or a grandson, or or is this just a, a, just a fictional way to, to uh, communicate some of the ideas of Mr. Emerson? Well, you know, you ask a profound question, then you might realize, because I think the book is an example of all those things that you just mentioned. Well, tell us about your background, first of all, Gene, before we get into some of these uh, great uh, bits of wisdom that you're trying to share with us. What's your background and, and why the book? Well, uh, the background, uh, I'm an ordinary guy. I'm up there with my hair quite gray at this stage of my life. I started out uh, back in the 50s as uh, an elementary school teacher, then went into the Army, got out of the Army, and uh, went to graduate school, and um, got into the areas of counseling, psychology, and human services. So as a consequence, I became a licensed psychologist, and I taught at a college teaching psychology to people who were going to work with especially young young kids. And uh, I couldn't help but... Uh, um, have a tremendous influence by my own personal experiences of uh, what you might call unexpected insights that came crashing in on me and it brought me right to Sem- uh, Walter Emerson, who talks about this, particularly in his book Self-Reliance. Self-Reliance, that says a lot. Just, of course, the, that word, There's uh, we could talk about that for a long time, couldn't we? You betcha. Do you see... Mr. Emerson's, his, uh, his wisdom, his views, his understanding of life applicable to today's teenager? Well, well I think it's uh, very much so. The difficulty is the concepts are pretty abstract, but they're so fundamentally important that I wanted to have a way to introduce people to those concepts that would be readable and that would be enjoyable. In other words, a lot of people will read this book recreationally because it's a it's an uplifting, uh, easy-to-read book, and yet they're going to be introduced to concepts in a way that was done with the boy in the book that'll make an impression on them. And I've had the people give me feedback about that already. Well, let's take that uh, essay that he wrote, Self-Reliance, and kind of talk about that and the way the grandfather shared that with his grandson. Okay. So tell us about, you know, basically, maybe you could even share some of uh, Mr. Emerson's words with us. Well, um, I I will. Uh, Grandfather starts out with Waldo Emerson by introducing him uh, to the concept of intuition. And intuition is, of course, a transcendental idea. That is, that it comes, messages come from within, as well as from teachers and books and, uh, you know, the literature from outside. And Emerson is trying to teach you not only to respect 
the wisdom of other people because you can't always rely on it because it may not be true for you as an individual. So Emerson is emphasizing turning inward and especially paying attention to those urges or what he calls in a very, very powerful sentence, uh, the uh, uh, flashes that come to you sometimes and pay attention to them because there's a lot to be found that will be meaningful to you personally in those flashes or intuitions. And intuition, of course, is a relatively abstract concept for a young kid to understand, let alone uh, older people. And so you have to introduce these kinds of ideas in a way that builds credibility. And, and the best way to do that is in little steps and also uh, relating it to the kid's own experience or the person, the reader's own experience. Obviously, you believe that young children can understand uh, these kinds of uh, deep, even profound concepts that someone like Mr. Emerson uh, advocates. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I, I'm glad you picked up on that because my first job was teaching third grade children, believe it or not. And this is going back many, many years. And one of the things that I found out is that you can teach almost anything to anybody as long as you break it down in terms of the language and the concepts that the kid is already familiar with and able to sustain. This is where the grandfather's excellence in teaching. He's a very crusty old guy himself, but he's got a knack for picking out one sentence, for example, have the kid read it, and suddenly read it again, get more, and read the same sentence again, get even more, because he has him probe deeper and deeper, which is a way of helping him to develop his own intuition and insight. So those are skills that uh, make it possible to teach even a young child, even a kindergarten child, if you break it down to the level and the amount that they can understand, taking it one step at a time and relating it to their experience. So here we have Mr. Emerson talking about a different number of messages that you're that you're trying to bring to light to better help us not only understand Emerson, but to understand ourselves. Exactly. So we have this spiritual as well as a natural side to the person, uh, and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, he understood that. And and so, again, we get back to self-reliance. You say, and he said, it's most desirable characteristic to possess. Now, why is that? Well, as I was saying before, he, he teaches over and over again through the words of Emerson that he then interprets with the boy that uh, – we get often led astray. For example, turn on the television or go to the movies. And what are you getting pounded with today? People are getting information that gives a very particular slant to life that's too restricted to the way it shouldn't be. It should include much more, much more uh, elevating concepts and uh, elevating ideas and feelings. And, of course, uh, if you go deal with the media today, mostly what you're being uh, pounded with is, is the stuff that sells. And unfortunately, that's all related to I, my, me, mind, competition, uh, hostility, violence, and that sort of thing. And there's another point to life that people are getting too far away from, even though they don't realize they're being drawn that way. And life is more than what we're showing them in our time. And we, I think, all understand when we look back in history, most of the great achievements were made by people who are and were self-reliant. That's exactly the point that Emerson makes when he gives in, I think, the second, or rather, the first sentence before 
the one sentence that he introduces uh, self-reliance to the boy, that, that there are people who had great ideas. They were great because they didn't follow other people's notions. They followed their own. And that came from inside, not from outside, not from teachers, not from books, but from the heart. Because ultimately, Emerson believed that all people have a fundamental sameness or spirit. That's why he refers to this, uh, the second article, or rather, the second essay that he talks about in the book, which is the oversoul. He doesn't call it soul, he calls it the oversoul. It's a common arch- archetypal kind of principle that exists in all people. And he wants this boy to understand that and tap into it. You raised the question, how could a rustic character like Grandpa ever be so well-versed in Emerson's ideas? So I'll let you answer your own question. (laughs) Okay. Well, he alludes to the fact that as a boy, he was very, the grandfather, that is, he was very interested in uh, natural history, you know, uh, animals, plants. He thinks about becoming a forest ranger at one point in his life. And so he hears uh, about this, this uh, guy, Emerson, who um, uh, wrote about things in a, a, an essay, 1841, I believe it was, uh, called Nature. It was really a little book, about a little less than 100 pages. And the boy, the grandfather, when he was a boy, thinks that this is really about uh, nature, and it is to a certain extent, but he realized that's only a small part of it because he's not talking about nature the way a biologist does. He's talking about nature as opposed to spirit. And Emerson tries to show that nature is actually a symbol of spirit, and if you look deeper into nature, you'll become familiar with or be exposed to probably intuitions that are of a transcendent nature because he believed that the, the fundamental reality isn't what we see, but what is behind what we see, which we almost never see, and that's what he's trying to teach the boy. And as someone learns, the, the great thing about learning is to be able to teach. And you have, you have this scenario where the boy who is being taught, he also becomes the teacher, even of his parents and his girlfriend. He actually does exactly those things without realizing that he's doing it because actually what he's doing is applying common sense and the common sense comes from what he thinks he should do instead of what other people tell him he should do, which is the message of Emerson. So we have this, uh, obviously, this these relationships, family and friends, uh, dealing with uh, problems of life, uh, conflicts to resolve, and you doing it from the point of view of this American sage who lived a long time ago and yet has uh, credible relevance to what we're going through today. I guess, you know, uh, people are people no matter when when and where they live. And they always have been and probably always will be, although hopefully the species is evolving just a little bit. And that's in terms of consciousness or understanding, evolution that is, not just the physical things. And important to you also is how Emerson appreciates both the natural and the spiritual and and how important that is today. That's fundamental. There's a, there's a point in the book where the boy is asked to read one sentence um, from Emerson uh, in, let's see, it says the little book called Nature, and he asks 
you read the or to read the sentence, which basically goes like this: If the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how would men believe in a door? And, and then he goes on to explain that and discuss it with the boy. And he says, look, think of it. If every night we gazed up into the sky and it was just black, we'd get used to seeing only that. We wouldn't think anything of it when we look up, up in the sky. Just black space, that's all. But suppose after years and years and years of looking at the sky in that way, all of a sudden you saw what you and I see when we look up in the sky on a clear night, the Milky Way, the, 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 the depth. All those stars, all the possibilities for what that means about creation and so forth. What would you think? And the boy answers the grandfather, I think it was a miracle. And the grandfather says, Matthew, that's exactly the point. Emerson is showing is, what Emerson is showing is that we're surrounded by miracles and we don't even realize it because we get so wrapped up in, in material things that we don't realize what it actually is there. And that's a profound concept for all of us. And, of course, the boy is able to understand it the way the, father, the grandfather explains it. Just one example of the wisdom that comes from Mr. Emerson and, and how uh, Eugene Pettercone is trying to help us better understand this kinds of wisdom. Uh, in his book, Waldo Emerson, My Grandfather and Me, Gene, what's the best way to get your book? The best way is to um, go to iUniverse.com and order from them. You can uh, get it from uh, any publisher. Um, most people that I know who have bought the book already get it from either BarnesandNoble.com or Amazon.com, which sells it a little cheaper, which is cheap in the first place. Well, thank you so much, Gene, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. It was my pleasure, and thank you very much, because you stimulated me. Every time I hear Emerson's ideas repeated back to me, it elicits a whole bunch of you know, questions and answers that uh, I profit from, too, so I appreciate it. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.